Hey everyone, is Hollywood out of ideas? We ask on our podcast where we regurgitate other people's ideas while making fun of them. Today's book is about the endless franchises in Hollywood. It's The Big Picture by Ben Fritz, who I'm sure wrote this after someone turned down his screenplay. (laughs) I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and for a book that was written based off of thousands of Sony's very private emails... It's disappointing that it's mostly just about movies. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. I can't criticize Hollywood for recycling bad ideas because I, David, am based on an adulterer-murderer-Israelite king. The big picture looks at how Hollywood keeps remaking the same stories over and over. But I keep hearing about that over and over, so two can play this game. And this is The Book Pile. And this is The Book Pile. (laughs) You think they'll get that? (laughs) (laughs) okay we've started a new game on the book pile where every week we make fun of people for half an hour and then if someone leaves a review that's even mildly critical we get really sad so please rate and review the book pile to keep this going (laughs) gladiator 20222333 says read my review in your podcast honestly the best podcast someone's recommended to me i listen while i drive to tutor four kids and i'm in a good mood when i get there because of kellen and dave's jokes all right thank you gladiator 20222333 (laughs) i had no idea how many gladiators are on the internet (laughs) i'm gonna be the west palm beach improv in florida november 19th through the 21st that's this week Then I'm at Wise Guys in downtown Salt Lake City, December 9th through the 11th. Finally, our next two books are Dune and The Wondrous Workings of Planet Earth, two episodes I intend to prepare while never leaving my house. All right, without further ado, here are our five favorite lessons from The Big Picture. All right, lesson one. It's hard to go against incentives. So this is a short one. Whenever people blame Hollywood for remaking the same stuff... It reminds me of when people are like, you know, only 100 companies make 70% of all carbon emissions. Because it's like, do you think the oil companies are just like setting it on fire? (laughs) (laughs) They're selling it to you. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, Hollywood is remaking the same stories because that's what we are watching. (laughs) This is my beef with Avatar because I still think it's a great movie. I know it's not a great story. I know the characters are forgettable, but it is one of the most beautiful things. Like, James Cameron created a planet, and we got to experience it, like, in 3D, and everyone acts like it was dumb and they never saw it. It's like the scene in Lord of the Flies when all the boys who killed the first boy pretend they weren't there. (laughs) It's like, okay, so who stabbed him? Right? Like, I can give you the numbers. Statistically, everyone in this room saw that movie three times. So don't come at me (laughs) with how it's exactly like Fern Gully. (laughs) Fern Gully, by the way, terrifying movie for a child. (laughs) Right? By the way, too, when people are like, Robin Williams, star power, because of the genie, and it's like, he was in Fern Gully the same year. He was that bat. (laughs) Who remembers the bat? Anyway, you see those perverse incentives other places as well. So, like, if saying the wrong thing loses tens of millions of dollars, that's why the whole industry is like, okay, remember, 
don't say that putting Uyghurs in camps is bad. <laughs> or like, you're probably not going to talk about paying workers fairly if you're trying to sell a show to Amazon. <laughs> so I, I don't have any kind of solution. But lately, honestly, I've been thinking like, maybe our biggest problem in the world is perverse incentives because it makes every other problem worse. It's the same thing to me. Uh, when people on Facebook post about the evils of big business, <laughs> like in broad daylight, giving their time and money to the second biggest business on the planet. <laughs> All right. Lesson two. You say that you're tired of sequels, but you're a liar. <laughs> So, Dave, like, how often have you heard this piece of small talk? Why did they keep making sequels and remakes? And it's like, oh, okay, so you saw zero Marvel movies? <laughs> Congratulations. I, I was thinking about this today, because I think of myself as, like, a middle-of-the-pack Marvel fan, where it's like, I like it, but I'm not obsessed. Anyway, I counted. I've seen 20 of their movies. <laughs> and... Is there anything else I would watch 20 movies about and still try to pretend I'm just an enthusiast? <laughs> like, maybe maybe we all need to be a little more honest with ourselves. I think it is, when it comes to certain franchises, it is binary. You either saw it or you didn't, because no one's like, yeah, I'm not really into Lord of the Rings. I saw the second one. <laughs> Look, I, I get it. We all like original stuff. I don't think that wanting to see a sequel or even making one should be vilified because most of our life is sequels or remakes. It's like you're you're telling me mm -hmm. that every time you make a sandwich, <laughs> you make one you've never had before. That's insane. We know what we like, and that's what we choose to experience way more than anything else so dave like what are some movies that you enjoy re-watching lately i rewatched most the things that are impacting the projects i'm working on so into the spider-verse little women watchmen the show fleabag i've been rereading harry potter once a year and i keep telling myself it's to make me a better writer but i think this is just who i am now <laughs> dave's a casual harry potter fan <laughs> I'm a fancier. <laughs> so the point of all that is that every time you rewatch a movie or reread a book, you are choosing to rewatch what you know you like over risking trying something new. It's the same when we go to the movies, like with ticket prices in California at approximately $195, 192 for children. You'd better bet that I'm going to spend that money on the next Bond film over like a movie poster of a bearded guy sitting on a dock. <laughs> right? It's like it's a great way of describing it. It's just the way that we like you hedge your bets with what's familiar. You could tell me that you don't agree, but only if you can prove to me that you've never seen a film from Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Fast and the Furious, Harry Potter, Godzilla, Jurassic Park, Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men. I've met one person like this, and uh, they're a real hoot, Dave. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to meet that person. <laughs> Unless it's the Dalai Lama. 
He talks about that in the book where it's like, yeah, if you have kids, movie tickets plus dinner plus a babysitter can easily be $100. So you're taking a $100 gamble that you're going to like this thing. And so it's just so much safer to gamble on something that you pretty much know what it is. It is wild, though, that movies went from like in the 1970s to 80s, making the occasional sequel to then the franchise to then now the cinematic universe, right? Where you have like (laughs) separate main characters and their movies that can bleed into each other. It's crazy that we went from something has to be really good to get a sequel to something has to be really good to be an original. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy to me too that this idea that yeah that it has gone from how can we spend ten million bucks on a movie to make a hundred million right and now it's what can we adapt that we can then make into thirty movies it that's literally the goal at this point it's so crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. And I just want to know, like, what's after cinematic universes? Like, why hasn't Broadway come on to this? I want to see dramatic universes. <laughs> like, imagine imagine in the aftermath of Alexander Hamilton's death, Evan Hansen tells everyone that they'd been best friends this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got letters to prove it. <laughs> All right, lesson three. Moneyball cuts both ways. So we talked about the inspirational story in Moneyball where statistics help out the little guy because in Moneyball, they dive into the stats of baseball and they realize, okay, wow, there are tons of great players who are never given a chance because they look different or they throw different or they're they're heavier or something. And in Moneyball, they those people finally get a chance and then they thrive. But a Moneyball story can also cut the other way and be terrible for the little guy. Because Disney looks at the stats and realizes, oh, we should never make anything new. (laughs) So here's how he describes Disney's strategy. Slashing the number of movies by two-thirds, abandoning any type of film that costs less than $100 million, is based on an original idea, or appeals to any group smaller than all the moviegoers around the globe. Disney doesn't make dramas for adults. It doesn't make thrillers. It doesn't make romantic comedies. It doesn't make horror movies. It doesn't make star vehicles. It doesn't adapt novels. It doesn't buy original scripts. It doesn't buy anything at film festivals. It doesn't make anything political or controversial. It doesn't make anything with an R rating. It doesn't give award-winning directors wide latitude to pursue their vision. So. Not a strategy that helps the little guy at all. (laughs) But now, let me read you the top 10 grossing films of 2019 domestic. One, Avengers Endgame. Two, The Lion King. Three, Toy Story 4. Four, Frozen 2. Five, Captain Marvel. Six, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. And at seven, our first non-Disney is Sony's Spider-Man Far From Home. Okay, so Disney. (laughs) Eight, Aladdin. And then nine and ten are finally Warner Brothers with Joker and it. So Disney is an empire. And actually, since this is Kellen's superpower, I want to ask him to give me the box office of as many of these as he can do. All right, you ready to try? I sure am. All right, Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame briefly held the title for biggest movie of all time. Uh, It passed up Avatar, but I believe the Avatar won back when there was a re-release in China. (laughs) That's so petty. (laughs) They beat Avatar by $10 million, which is insane when you consider the Endgame made like $2.7 billion worldwide. And Avatar did too, so it was just like a $10 million difference. (laughs) 
You're exactly right. Okay. 2.7. 2.797. So if we rounded. <laughs> and then domestically, uh, I'm not as confident. I want to say that it made around 750. Uh, 858. 850. So it was off by 100 million. It is funny to me that Avengers Endgame has probably 40 characters that I know by name <laughs> and was the culmination of tons and tons of movies. <laughs> and with inflation, it squeaked by Avatar. A movie where I can't remember a single character name. <laughs> Avatar happened while I was out of the country, so I didn't see it till years later. And it's just this enigma for me where I'm like, I don't know what was going on. <laughs> it is crazy how some things have, like, culturally, they have legs, and then Avatar just didn't. It was the only thing that people saw for a good three months, and then it just disappeared. Uh-huh. <laughs> If, yeah, my favorite example of that, if you ever want to feel profound existential angst about how much any of our lives amount to, go and read the Time Person of the Year and be shocked by how many people you have no idea who they are. <laughs> All right, The Lion King. Oof. Up until Shrek 2 came out, the first Lion King was the highest grossing animated film of all time. So the you're talking about the live action Lion King, I know made one point six billion, yes, uh, worldwide, um, and then in the uh, domestically it made five hundred and fifty. Oh my gosh, five hundred and forty three. <laughs> all right, Toy Story four. Toy Story four, I believe, was the highest. I'm going to say worldwide, it made one billion even. Yeah. Did it really? How close was I? One billion, 73 million. <laughs> yes. This is incredible. It's weird how excited I am. <laughs> you know you're not getting any of that, right? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. It's like sports for me. It's like when, uh, you know, when the Braves just won the World Series and everyone in Atlanta is like, we did it. And it's like, you didn't do that. <laughs> like, Fifteen guys did that. <laughs> so I think I'm going to be off. I'm going to say it made $460 million. 434 Okay. That's respectable. That's a respectable guess. Now now do any movie. Yes. Now do <laughs> Now do any movie ever. Uh Get Out. Get Out. Oh, so Get Out and Us made a very similar amount of money domestically. I'm going to say Get Out made a little bit more. I'm going to say it made 187. It's 176. <laughs> All right. Lesson four. Star power doesn't exist anymore. So Dave, is there an actor that you will watch every movie they come out with no matter what other than Matthew Broderick? <laughs> uh, lately, maybe Florence Pugh. Okay. And that's safe. She hasn't missed for me. Because she's been in four things. Um, <laughs> sure. So I thought that mine was Tom Cruise, but then I looked back at his IMDb and there's a ton of movies that I have never, I, so I've never seen Night and Day, never seen Eyes Wide Shut or Top Gun. And that's true. That's, <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> so to be clear, you, knowing you had not seen Top Gun, 
thought you had seen every Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> I just thought that he was my guy where like, everything is in, I'm gonna see. I think I was just basing it on the <laughs> fact that I've seen the last three Mission Impossibles. <laughs> okay, first of all, the plural is Missions Impossible. <laughs> Mission colons impossible. <laughs> I just love that. It's almost like, man, I love every Jim Carrey movie. Now, I haven't seen Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so in the book, he talks about how this this was the case up until, I mean, relatively recently, people would go to movies based on star power. If you liked Julia Roberts, you would just see the next Julia Roberts movie and studios could bank on it. But it just isn't the case anymore. And so this is where I... I split off a little bit with with his theory. He goes off of the fact that now we have these cinematic universes, and so people are more interested in seeing these ongoing stories than necessarily who is in them. You have Robert Downey Jr. who's in Iron Man, uh, but then Dr. Doolittle bombs. Like, it just doesn't happen anymore where people see a movie because of an actor. So I would argue... To be fair, (laughs) Dr. Doolittle looked like a terrible movie. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but... (laughs) But people just used to see movies anyway. And I think the difference is now that, first of all, we have more accessibility to movies than we ever have before, especially for a buck. I know that movie prices, like admission prices, the theaters have gone up, but you can spend 10 bucks a month on Netflix and watch 700 movies. I also think that social media is to blame because it used to be. It used to be that a movie was the only place you would ever see Josh Brolin, right? Unless you happen to catch him (laughs) on Letterman on the right night. But now because of Instagram, you can see what he had for brunch yesterday. (laughs) I will say, so the, mm -hmm. the central thesis of this book, like you're saying, is that as recently as the early 2000s, we went to movies for the stars and the stars kept us coming back. But now it's the the theory is that now it's the franchises that keep us coming back. And I can't be sure if it's fully true in my case, because now my favorite stars just don't get cast in big movies that aren't part of franchises. Mm. <laughs> just that's what all the big movies uh, are. That's true. Yeah. So I I have no control group anymore. <laughs> So we get a firsthand account uh, of this, the waning of star power in the early 2010s because of these emails that were leaked by Sony. That's why we have uh, this inside Mm -hmm. story. So um, during the 2000s, Will Smith and Adam Sandler were Sony's rainmakers, which is crazy to me that Adam Sandler accomplished what he did. (laughs) But as their star power became... Less of a guarantee of box office success, things started changing. No one at Sony wanted to make Adam Sandler's film Jack and Jill, which is a movie where Sandler plays a guy and his own sister. A movie which currently holds 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) What a brave reviewer. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate contrarian. That reviewer, I'm imagining a scenario where they were one of the first viewers of Jack and Jill. They were like, oh, I liked it. Wrote a review. And then steadily over the the following week, feared for their job. You know what I would love to see? I would love to see a study that looks at movie reviews pre and post Rotten Tomatoes 
to see if they are more highly correlated since Rotten Tomatoes got big. Huh. I would not be surprised at all if Rotten Tomatoes encourages groupthink among reviewers. Oh, 100%. I'm <laughs> sure there's way too much of that. I, I, how easy would it be to become a movie reviewer at this point, to just go on Rotten Tomatoes, read 12 of them, and be like, here, well, here are some of my insights and original jokes. <laughs> there's this great quote by W.H. Auden. One cannot review a bad book without showing off. <laughs> yes. How can I take this labor of love they spent years on? For instance, the Twilight Saga. <laughs> that they intentionally made bad. <laughs> so that's it. It was just fascinating to me. And in a nutshell, the stars lost their power, but they didn't really lose their money because then Adam Sandler, as he lost his power with those studios... He made a $400 million deal with Netflix. Hmm. By the way, I think Adam Sandler has one of the greatest comedy special titles ever, which plays partially on his very poor record <laughs> with Rotten Tomatoes. It's a special that he released last year, and he just preemptively called it 100% fresh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lesson five. Maybe this is fine. <laughs> so, 21 Jump Street is a reboot. And there's this great quote where the police chief is giving them a mission. And he says, we're reviving a canceled undercover police program from the 80s and revamping it for modern times. You see, the guys in charge of this stuff lack creativity and are completely out of ideas. So all they do now is recycle crap from the past and expect us all not to notice. <laughs> and it's a hilarious quote, but... With that said, 21 Jump Street was still really good. Great movie. Yeah. And so I look at just how many of my favorite things were adaptations, whether it's Little Women or Hamilton or Into the Spider-Verse or The Watchmen show on HBO, or even most of Shakespeare, he's just adapting something else. And so I have to take that into account. And then also, I never sit down and say, ah, there's nothing good to watch. <laughs> and so... I'm like, uh, maybe this is fine. Well, I mean, even our podcast admittedly is a remake of a German podcast from the 1940s. <laughs> das Buchenpiel. <laughs> we did have to recast Dave. The original Dave had much more problematic views. <laughs> We had to soften him for American sensibilities. <laughs> the original theme song was Saith each DJ say shit. And it was played on a bone saw. <laughs> All right, random facts. So he talks about how Disney pretty much follows an Apple model where instead of making a ton of products, you just make a few products and you obsess over them. And if you get people to love them, then every year you can just make a new one that's slightly different. <laughs> and I would say Disney is also like Apple because every year we're like, what? This is exactly the same. And then we buy billions. <laughs> Have a new idea. We tweet at Tim Cook from our new iPhone. <laughs> Everyone who's like, I hate remakes. And then they have visited both Disneyland and Disney World. <laughs> so Amy Pascal, I think, has the most tragic story of the worst foresight in human history. 
<laughs> Sony was offered either $10 million just for the rights to Spider-Man or for $25 million, they could have the rights to every Marvel character, save the X-Men and the Hulk. That's 5,000 characters for $25 wow. million. Dollars. So to be clear, hold on, am I doing my math right? Is that $5,000 a character? <laughs> That's insane. And Amy Pascal, (laughs) along with the board at Sony, gave them a resounding no. And Amy Pascal, the quote is, no one gives a blank about any of the other Marvel characters. (laughs) 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 So in the end, Sony saved $15 million. And as of today... All of those characters went on to make $23 billion. <laughs> And people think the worst day of Amy Pascal's life was when her emails leaked where she calls Angelina Jolie a brat. <laughs> I will say, even if they had bought them, I don't know if I would expect them to be nearly as successful as Marvel has been because I attribute so much of Marvel's success to just the right team behind it. You know what I mean? Like, Everyone's trying to copy Marvel, and no one is succeeding at nearly the level they've succeeded at. I agree. It isn't a guarantee that they would have made the same moves or used the same people. And they didn't have a great track record with what they ended up doing to Spider-Man. But for sure, like even that isn't a comforting thought to all those people who are beating themselves up for the rest of their life. It's not comforting <laughs> to, to think. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We we would have messed it up anyway. <laughs> I mean, we made the right realistically, move. Realistically, probably, yeah. If you don't care about those characters, you're never going to make the labor of love <laughs> that is the Marvel universe. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. As proof that it's not just the characters, there are a ton of X Men, and the X Men were really well known. And Fox has owned the X Men forever. Do you know anyone who's a diehard X-Men fan who's like, oh, I see everyone? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's so funny when someone makes a blanket statement like, no one cares about any of the other Marvel characters. And it's like, no, you don't care about any of the other Marvel <laughs> yeah. characters. It's like that scene in Little Women where the male publisher rejects the Little Women manuscript, and then his daughters, who are Little Women, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think about this all the time. I call it the golden rule problem, this idea that the golden rule is only a good strategy if you are like the person you're trying to choose for. (laughs) So there's the classic examples that like J.K. Rowling got turned down by all these adult publishers, and then one of them showed it to his daughter, and she's like, this is amazing. And then he's like, okay, yeah, we got to do this. (laughs) Or Sarah Sarah Blakely pitched Spanx to all these male factory owners, and they were like, I don't get it. (laughs) And then one showed it to his daughter, and she was like, you have to do this. And then it became this huge success. There are just all these instances where it's like, if you're making decisions for other people, and those people are not like you, your decision's probably not going to be very good. I mean, that's the whole premise of Invisible Women. Which is what Amy Pascal uh, became seven years after this decision. <laughs> I, I mean, I read this book and I was like, haha, sucks to be Sony. And then they made Little Women and Into the Spider-Verse. And I was like, I will die for you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to be in there, like, just for this day at Sony, where Amy Pascal goes, get out of my office. No one cares about Iron Man. Anyway. Back to greenlighting this movie where Adam Sandler plays the devil's stepson. (laughs) Anyway, back to this movie where we very publicly insult 
the leader of North Korea. <laughs> so Lassiter and Catmull had a motto at Pixar, which is, nobody would remember if a movie was late, but everyone would remember if it was bad. <laughs> we call it the Cars 2 principle. So that's why instead of Mondays, we're going to release our new podcast episodes when the muses tell us they're ready. <laughs> So the the author of this book, I, I appreciate all the research that he did, but he's he's not necessarily like a a funny writer. But I do enjoy his chapter headings. So here's an example of a a, a few of them: Revenge of the Nerds, the Rise of Marvel Studios, and then my favorite chapter is called The Terminator, Disney, the perfect studio for the franchise age. <laughs> which you have to admire what Disney has done, but they've also created an incredible chore for my grandkids because when I was a kid, there were three Star Wars movies. (laughs) But now, like, when my kids have kids, I'm going to have to be like, hey, you see that new Star Wars movie coming out? That's going to be fun. Uh, Before that, we first need to watch these 53 other ones. (laughs) Just to get you caught up. <laughs> this is a genuine question. Do you think movies will ever have a previously? Like a previously on oh. Marvel. <laughs> well, that's, that's what he says in the book. I thought it was well-worded when he said that circa 2010, movies started to become TV series, and every good TV series was like a 10-hour movie. Hmm. I get the first half of that. I don't get the second half. Well, it's like every season of Game of Thrones is like a- Oh, so it's like movies suddenly have the continuity of TV shows, and TV shows suddenly can have the production quality of a movie, that sort of thing? Yes. Gotcha. That's what I meant to say. Without the explanation, I can just be like, now bicycles are like cars, and cars are like bicycles. (laughs) No, it wasn't just a lazy parallel sentence. (laughs) Now boys are like tetherball, and tetherball is like boys. At one point, a high-status movie reviewer compared Sony's After Earth and White House Down to Ishtar and Waterworld. So Amy Pascal, again, the chairperson of uh, movies at Sony, she said in an email, it was two expletive movies. How long does this go on? And then the author says, it would go on for several years and get much worse. <laughs> but I, I think it's much—it's more complicated than just blaming one person for a bad movie. That's something else that I took away from this book. Like, it could be Will Smith's fault for making the priority to showcase his son in After Earth, or it could be M. Night Shyamalan for directing things terribly, or it could be Will Smith for hiring M. Night Shyamalan. Or it could be Sony for greenlighting a movie with a weak premise and so little Will Smith. Or it could be Will Smith for writing his first and last movie. Like, there are just a lot of variables. I get why Will Smith would think he could write it, because it's like, well, I can rap and act and do all these other things, and I haven't failed at any new thing I've tried yet. Isn't it crazy that Will Smith won the first grammy ever for rap when i remember that fun fact the only thing i can think of are the words when i stroll into the wild wild west (laughs) 
Like I, I enjoy Will Smith's rapping, but that's so insulting that he won the first Grammy for rap (laughs) over, over like all the pioneers of hip hop. Like it's, it'd be like if Kids Bop won a Grammy. (laughs) It just speaks to mainstream music being so unwilling to welcome in rap at all. Right. Yeah. And so much like a good hip hop, especially in the beginning, it was influenced by uh, actual like cultural and social struggle, like music that came from pain the same way that, you know, blues and soul did. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then, (laughs) but then Will Smith just walks up and he's like, Hey everyone, here's a rhyme. I never swear, I'm always nice. (laughs) It's genuinely like how back in the day, a black artist would write a song and then the studios would have a white artist do the same song just to sterilize it for a white (laughs) audience. But if if I'm like Pac or Biggie, then it's like, maybe I don't want to be the first one who wins... A gr- you know what I mean? Maybe I don't want that mainstream acceptance. Right, yeah. It's sort of how, like, when the Sex Pistols got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they're like, we don't want it. <laughs> I just verified it. It was DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince who won, who won for their song, Parents Just Don't Understand. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> among the all-time great rap hits that really speak to the struggle. <laughs> you get artists who are, like, coming from experience of, like, poverty and police brutality. And Will Smith is like, don't you just hate it when you want to stay up late? <laughs> <laughs> and your parents are like, hey, it's 10 o'clock. Go back to your room. <laughs> all right to recap our five favorite lessons from the big picture one it's hard to go against incentives two you say that you're tired of sequels but you're a liar three moneyball cuts both ways four star power doesn't exist anymore five maybe this is fine and six if you want to become a movie star first make grammy history by writing a song about when you got grounded. (laughs) 